If you want to watch the game that we're playing this week, you can see the video version of the podcast at ericandkelby.com. Thanks for listening to The Personal History of Games. I'm your host, Eric Canius. This week, we're joined by Professor Sharif Jackson. When he's not tutoring folks through his Math Looks Good LLC or playing D&D online with the rivals of Waterdeep, he's busy being a strong voice in STEM diversity advocacy. Sharif was kind enough to join me in playing some combat for the Atari 2600 while we discussed arcades, barcades, and everything in between in his personal history with games. Here's that conversation. Uh, so what made you think of combat? Well, um, when I was young, we had an Atari. We had a ton of video games in a shoebox. My family was also uh, pretty poor, so I did not know why we had all these games. <laughs> Little did I know this was uh, about 1985 or so. So, you know, like a couple of years after the video game crash. Right. Um, the Nintendo was already out, but it was kind of too expensive for us to get. So we just had all these games and I felt like we were rich. Little did I know that that was because, you know, the games were selling for like a dollar each, you know, (laughs) because Atari was, you know, just like not a thing anymore, really. But we played a lot of Atari in the mid 80s, way after, you know, the reign of Atari was kind of over. And like combat was definitely one that uh, my brother and I played a lot of. Just like a lot of, um, you know, so, so like there's a lot of like memorable Atari games, but like when I think of the probably the most memorable, it would be combat for sure. Um, I mean, we would just play for hours. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, it, it just felt so real, which is weird to say now, but like, <laughs> like the sound of the treading of the tanks is one thing that really made it feel real to me. And I don't know, it just, it just felt awesome. Like it felt great to, to like get like a hit from far away. And they also have the another mode that's like planes. Yes. Um, like the biplane mode, which is very good too. So yeah, we just would play tons of this. Tons of this. Yes. There's there's <laughs> something about being young and even a game like the game is fairly simple. Uh just being able to find hours and hours and hours of entertainment out of it is definitely something that I don't know, I'm not able to do anymore. But yeah, there's something about the simplicity and just playing with someone forever. It was very fun. Yeah. And and like, yeah, it's simple, but it's also like on levels like the one that we're playing now, it's strategic, you know, like there's a cover, you know, like there's like baiting people out and tricking people into doing a certain thing. I mean, there it, it like really is kind of like easy to understand, but hard to master, which I guess is most games of this era because they didn't really have, you know, the memory capacity for complex controls or anything like that. So most of them are like, like you get in. Um, and I think that, that they also have kind of that arcade like mentality of like, they want to hook you so that they can take all your money in the arcade. <laughs> you know, so. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, also, also my brother in general was better at me at most games. <laughs> um, but this is one where I, I could uh, hold my own. On. Is this an older or younger brother? Uh, older, for sure. He was he was better <laughs> at me than in like everything. So <laughs> That's the way it is. Yes, yeah. I have four older brothers, so I know the feeling. 
Yeah, like I would love to see the the code for this game. I'm pretty sure like it's open source by now, but um, oh, probably. You, you know, like I've done my share of like C plus plus and C coding of games uh, of like very simple games. Um, like uh, for a school project, we we had to code like Tetris in some other games. But I would I would I would really love to see the code behind Combat. I think, it would, I think it'd be interesting, and, and and like not not only see the code, but see the limitations of the twenty six hundred chip and memory to see like how they had to like balance all the resources. Yeah, because like I remember thinking adventure. I remember thinking like how that was even possible. Like it seemed like it it just had infinite levels, infinite screens on that game. <laughs> yeah, that stuff is wild. Like getting this emulator set up. In order to get this game, it, they just had ROMs with the entirety of the Atari 2600 uh, catalog, and it was 10 megabytes. Wow. And that's it. Yeah, it's something. I, I mean, it's, it's like, I almost imagine, like, you know, I've, obviously I was young, so I wasn't thinking about that stuff. But, like, say I was, like, in college when this came out studying coding. Like, I wonder how I would have thought about, like, like, I can't believe they fit all this into a kilobyte. You know? <laughs> Yeah, the the I I'm not good at that sort of logic, but I can't imagine it's it's a it would be a fun puzzle to solve. Yeah, like uh, I just wonder like with the playtesting, like how they come up with the number of bounces, you know, mm-hmm. or like the sounds, even you know, like like uh, did they have a library of sounds that they were going through? You know, just just like a lot of interesting questions that obviously we like ask about games now. <laughs> But I feel like people now, they like think that, that these simple games that people had the reference point of now when they were like uh, creating these. But it's like, no, they had to <laughs> play test these and, you know, make sure that it felt good and all that stuff. Like, obviously not the same. It wasn't like the same kind of industry, but like pe- people were still proud of their work and wanted to, to like make things look and sound good. Uh, so speaking of people programming, not knowing where we are now. That's kind of the loose format of the show is starting from where we are now. We're playing combat over the internet in this hellscape of 2020. Um, <laughs> but where did this all start? So we started with you having the Atari and all those cheap games. And like, yeah, having those games show up because of the industry collapsing and making them cheap, like kind of unlock this as an availability for you and your family. Uh, so you mentioned arcades in the little survey you filled out. What's your what was your quintessential arcade experience? Um, I would probably say probably a little near the end of the arcade area era, actually. Um, with like Street Fighter Two, that's definitely one game that I can remember like exactly when it came out, and it kind of just like changed everything. Like it, it, it changed everything in terms of like I remember. Before Street Fighter 2 came out, th- there was no like main game. It was just like a bunch of games in there. Right. But when that game came out, they like started putting a game kind of in the middle and they had to put space around it because they knew that people would like line up for it. Now, I'm not sure if people would like do that with like, you know, Hackman or Space <laughs> Invaders because like, those are like a little beyond my time. I'm pretty sure that that they did because like those were like massive hits, you know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it was it was like super uh, interesting. So like that was my definite number one experiences 
playing Street Fighter 2 for like the early time, like before everyone actually knew all the combos and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it was just a cool like mutual learning experience of like having people teach you the game. Right. You know, it was something unlike something I think I've experienced in gaming really was like that game just like bringing a lot of like different uh, people. Like um, I, I remember that like, that was one of the few games that like I would see people from like, you know, people would go from arcade to arcade from like different neighborhoods and like different towns to like play other people. So like it became like almost like a league, you know? Right. So yeah, it was, uh, you know, 1991, I believe was when, uh, Street Fighter 2 came out and, you know, also, also like having six buttons, was pretty crazy at the time. Like, <laughs> like it was, it, it was just like, what is going on here? You know? Um, so yeah, it, it would just, and like, also I still contend that it probably has for its time, some of the best music in, in a arcade game. Man. Like, like uh, that, um, I, I, I believe it was called like the CPS board, which was the uh, board that like a Capcom used that like they had, updated from like final fight and stuff that board just like the like amount of power that it had for for like a uh, music and stuff was just crazy mm-hmm. that's cool just thinking about like people touring their fighting skills around uh what part of america was this in so so uh, this was in northern new jersey um so i grew up in uh patterson new jersey which is about maybe about 10 miles from manhattan so like we had a lot of arcades since like we were near like you know like the media capital of the world so we had a ton of arcades and right. malls and stuff cool um it was very very fun <laughs> yeah growing up in i mean even well by the time i was around arcades weren't big but in my prairie town kind of equivalent to the midwest not a lot going on yeah yeah i always wonder about the arcade scene in other parts of the country because obviously you like hear about like california and the new york area and stuff but i kind of wonder how it was in like other other parts of the country and did barcades do anything for you when they came back or when they oh uh, yeah 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 actually i'm moving uh when when i lived in new york and in Philadelphia, there was a place called Barcade, which was the, I believe, the first one that was like commercially like successful. Um, where like you know, I loved it because the beer was cheap and the games were like twenty five <laughs> cents. You know, yeah. So like, um, I just, I mean, like we would just like have some drinks and just go in on a game of like Ninja Turtles or NBA Jam or something like that. So like it was, it was a mostly focused on like multiplayer games and. It did kind of have that vibe of like meeting people th- that you don't know and just playing a game. And like, you almost don't even have to like talk to people. Like, there's no expectation that you got to be like friends with a person or anything. You just <laughs> go there and just play. And, and maybe if it's cool, like you might talk to the person a second time, but like you never had to. You know? Yeah. It's that's an interesting aspect to bring to a bar, especially when they're so, um, there's a lot of bad stuff going around at bars or just like awkward moments or people talking to people that they shouldn't. <laughs> yes. Um, but like arcades being there as sort of a, a buffer or a barrier or even a, an icebreaker just to have some sort of social thing happen, but then it can just break off. There's like a beginning and end to it. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting aspect to bring to a bar 
Yeah, and the barcade in Philly specifically was like, it wasn't too far from my house, but like I definitely had to take a train to like I get there. And it was just cool because I got to meet people outside of like where I lived. Right. Which like, I really liked. And um, it was just dope. It was very dope. <laughs> Hey folks, if you're enjoying this podcast, Bean to Media has another new podcast I think you'll love. It's called Do We Like, and I co-host it along with my partner, Robin. Robin, do you want to explain the show? Thanks, Eric. Hi, I'm Robin, co-host of Do We Like, a podcast where Eric and I debate common people, places, and things to decide if we like them or need to leave them. Join us each week as we debate controversial topics like pickles, underwear, bubble tea, and Queen Elizabeth I? Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or come find us at dewelike.com. So was it just mainly you and your brother playing games in the household? So my mom and dad would play a little bit. Um, I definitely remember them playing some stuff with us. I think once they got to a NES controller, they kind of backed out a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they did play some Mario because it, definitely was you know for like people that were not around during that time it was a obsession i mean like it was <laughs> like i don't even know what you would even equate it to now i guess like minecraft or fortnite or whatever um it was everywhere it was on commercials it was cereal there was t-shirts it was cartoons like it was <laughs> inescapable you know hmm. so like so like they kind of wanted to see like what the type was about so they definitely played some i actually remember the day we got our Nintendo. I should check. I should ask my parents exactly when it was. I think it might have been like maybe '88 or something like that. And I remember playing with them on our first day. Like, like I remember them actually playing with us uh, through like the first c- couple of uh, levels of uh, of of, of uh, Super Mario Brothers. Cool. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that was probably the last time I ever gamed with them. Until I actually, I actually no, not not the last time, but probably until Wii Sports was probably the next time I actually played right. a game. With them. Yeah, that's the kind of the gap there. Once they made it accessible, although the one game I was able to get my mom to play was Rock Band. Oh, nice! That was a, quite the experience. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really think that um, you know pe- people forget that how I mean in that time, like like games were Nintendo. Like Nintendo was like a basically a synonym for video games. Yeah. And it was like a big mainstream thing. Like it wasn't like this niche gamer thing that some people tend to think that gaming has, has always been, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easy to forget because it like Nintendo got huge and then it kind of waned away and then more specific things came out like the N64 and the PlayStation and it got yeah. a little more complicated, but then the Wii brought it all back and, yeah, yeah, and and the the like reason why those other companies were successful because their marketing was like we're not Nintendo, you know, yeah. like we like provide a a more mature experience or or a more realistic experience, you know, which like worked. I mean, like that got Sony and Microsoft in the game. I remember thinking it was completely ridiculous that Microsoft was coming out with a video game console. I was like, there's <laughs> no way that would ever work. No way. <laughs> You know, I I mean, like, because uh, th- like that came out, and I think, I think it was two thousand one. I was like a senior in uh, college, and you know, I was all we would do was complain about the bugs in like Windows ninety eight, <laughs> and I think Windows uh, XP was out, but like I think Windows uh, Vista 
had just come out. Ooh, classic. And like we we were like, how is this company not gonna have the buggiest console <laughs> of all time? Now, like it was a little prophetic with the red ring stuff with the 360, but like that didn't like destroy them, you know, as a company. Like yeah, still, surprisingly, no. No. And like now we're like, you know, about to have a new console launch soon. And they have one of the, in my opinion, one of the best models of gaming with Game Pass, you know, where they're really, they are really like focusing more on like selling the service all on Netflix than necessarily the hardware. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot more future thinking than just making another console and doing what you've always been doing. That's surprising to see from Microsoft, honestly. But if it's good, I've been enjoying Game Pass because I don't have an Xbox, but I play on the PC and being able to play Absolutely. a lot of these games that are, used to be console exclusives, and they've, they've been putting them all on the PC, and it's just been I'm paying, I'm giving the money that they didn't have before. So, yep, yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't owned an Xbox since the 360, but I've still been able to play like Forza and Gears and you know Ori and all those games. Um, you know, so um, yeah, yes, yeah, I'm 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 happy that they. Are, are like doubling down on it because like it it really is like the future but it's also not as sexy as like we got this new box with exclusive games you know that, that you can only play here which is obviously the the like sony and and like nintendo model you know yeah like like the classic model i guess of games you know? mm -hmm. so like microsoft is trying to take it to the next level which i appreciate because competition is good like they like they all like uh, they like push each other to be better. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so you seem to be quite a learned fellow, especially in the maths and physics and engineering and all that. Yeah. Was there any inspiration from games or that, or just that like um, coinciding interests? Uh, yeah, I think there was a little bit of an experience. I mean, I when I was growing up, I had no idea what engineering was. It wasn't like like at that time in the. 80s and 90s, it wasn't something where they were like, hey, like you can be an engineer in school, you right. know? Um, so I knew games were cool. And I, I was the kind that I would write into game magazines. I would, <laughs> you know, ask questions about stuff, but I still never could say, I, I didn't know that the math and stuff I was learning were a part of games like when I was a kid. So I didn't really make the connection uh, until later. Yeah. So like, I don't think I knew when I was younger, but I definitely, when I started getting in into maybe my junior or senior year of like high school, um, because I was kind of thinking about what kind of college I wanted to like go to. So I knew that I wanted to like do, do something that was math related, but the only thing that, that I could think of was like accounting <laughs> because I kind of knew that you could, you know, do bank stuff. Right. But it wasn't, I think, until I got to college and like I had to take these like these these computer science courses as like part of my my uh engineering thing and like I got to program games and I was like, This is awesome. <laughs> you know? So so I originally thought I wanted to be like a game programmer, I guess, but I found out that like, I don't know, straight up software is not really my thing. Um so I I dabble in it and I love it for like teaching logic and algorithms and stuff. But I found out that like I enjoy to talk about and discuss games, but not from like the strict, like uh, the, 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 the like a programming side of things. Right. So like I teach a class at like the University of Wisconsin in like a Whitewater where we talk about like gaming narrative and 
and diversity in games and that kind of stuff. So like I so like I prefer to have my contribution there, you know, as opposed to like being a like dev, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can answer this question. I was just having this conversation with my with my wife. <laughs> we were because we're not big math people, just the way our brains work. So maybe you can answer. You seem to be a fan of math. Yes. What makes what excites you about math? What is interesting to you about math? What excites me about math is that it's a language, and it's a language that helps describe everything that that we see. That's what excites me by far the most is like, it's not this sort of abstract thing that people just learn to learn. It's like literally like answers questions that I had as a kid, like, why does fire burn? Or why do I get shocked when I put a fork in an outlet? You know, or like, how, how does a refrigerator keep things cold? Like all these questions that I always used to have about like, about like the, the things that I observed are like answered by that language, you know? So like, yeah, that, that is what excites me about math is because it satisfies that curiosity that I've always had about like why things are the, the, the way they are. Cool. That is the, the best answer I've heard for that. So thank you. But not to put your, put your teacher hat on, <laughs> how does math answer how fire burns? See, this is what I, this is maybe I should never understood this. Sure. How did that, that one in particular? Yeah. Um, so if you might recall, um, back in the day, Aristotle, um, or like if like you're a fan of uh, Avatar, the, the, the Last Airbender, it used to be said that like everything was made of like earth, air, fire, and water, of like the four elements, mm-hmm. and that like everything else is like a mixture of like of those things, right? But through chemistry, which like I use as math as the like language, we like actually see that fire is not a, a like element at like a all it's like an output of a chemical equation which which like can be described with like a algebra which is a basically like adding oxygen to like another substance you know so like it's really like a uh output of a reaction between elements as opposed to like to like a element itself oh <laughs> So it's like this plus this equals fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In like the yeah, most base. Yeah, and 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 like the, the like whole reason that like uh people put water on fire or they say to like smother fires that fire needs oxygen and if you smother something it's going to reduce the amount of like uh oxygen and if you put like a water on it that is also going to reduce the amount of like available oxygen to that fire. So like fire needs oxygen, which is a why you technically are not going to have big fires and explosions in space. Um, right. So, so yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> blown my mind that it, like, it just makes, it makes so much sense. It's just having it explained in a way that, that is understandable is sometimes the thing that blows your mind. I mean, that, that I think is one of the biggest failures of like most teaching is that we don't teach things based on like what people see every day, mm-hmm. you know? Like we see fire every day. I feel like every student should come out of a chemistry class knowing why fire exists, you know? Or like a why like smoke exists or like how like water is made. You, you know, like uh, I feel like we still c- kind of like follow this like 
hundred year old kind of like motto of what someone should know. Yeah. And like in, instead of, of like I'm thinking about, hey, we should be enabling students to describe what they can visibly see. And then if they're interested in like further in the advanced courses, then we can focus on like, you know, on the subatomic level and that kind <laughs> of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like that will be a much better model for us. I agree. As someone who kind of recently learned that I have a learning difference and like the abstract really doesn't click. I was real bad at school because it was all abstract. Yeah. Um, but like seeing things and visualizing things is how it makes sense. So yeah. thank you for that little lesson. That's very helpful. I, I, I mean, I get that question a lot um, because like I often have, you know, like I have parents um, when I'm engaging them on like a tutoring session, they might interview me or like ask me some questions just like to kind of see like how, how my mind works or like how I think, you know, and like that'll usually be a part of it. So I get a lot of questions like that or like they are just like curious uh, about Does it. teaching about games like changed your relationship with them at all or is it just like the way you've always been thinking about them and now you're sharing that with other people? Oh, it's definitely changed it. You know, it kind of can be hard to take that hat off and just enjoy a game for what it is when I'm usually a analyzing to like see if something will be a good game for the class. <laughs> you know, um, that th th that has happened a lot over the years because like I've taught the class for like th this this is going to be the uh, the uh, fourth year in the uh, spring. So like, yeah, it, because our class involves like actively like playing games and like discussing them in like real time. I'm like always thinking about games, even like I see a uh, trailer and I'm basically like, oh yeah, this might be this and I might be able to like use it for <laughs> like for this thing, you know? So um, yeah, it it has definitely changed it. But I think for the better, because I think that like all media, we should be thinking like intelligently about it. Like it, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy something, you know, like, hey, I just, like, I just watched the like Bill and Ted movie. I wasn't like analyzing it for for like anything deep, you know? Yeah. But I do think that, um, you know, it has like helped me to like appreciate games on like a better scale and like as like more important like media. So mm -hmm. uh, what are some games on your syllabus? I'm curious, always curious about that. Sure. Um, so I'd say some games that like we've used a lot. We have a part where like we talking about how like changing the input experience can change your your um, perception of a game so we have so we have our, our our students play bayonetta which is like a pretty combo heavy game with like a regular controller with a mouse and like a keyboard and with the microsoft adaptive controller cool um and we have them like write them like a write about like you know how that's changed their experience um yeah uh we use gone home a lot for like exploring uh, like narrative and like a sexual identity and like a queerness so like we we use that game a lot um we use uh to like a show how the same concept can be explored in like different ways. We like use the like cooking module from Job Simulator, which is a VR game. So we have them try to cook in in Job Simulator <laughs> versus trying to cook in a four player game of like overcooked. Right. So we do that um, because most of, of the people in, in my class are like, you know, like 17, 18 years old. I like having them play like old beat em ups like uh Double Dragon and Final Fight and stuff. 
so that they can see how like character design was and like how women were were like depicted, how like people of color were, um, how like it was very like stereotypical and stuff. And we talk about that. Uh, we also will like typically do like like simulation game like uh, Animal Crossing or Stardew Valley or such to like also show the like relaxing kind of benefit of uh, games as well. So so yeah, there's I mean there's many other games that that we use, but like those are like the first ones that come to mind. Cool. Yeah, so interesting thing of it as a medium with such different levels. I mean, other mediums have that too. You're listening to different types of music, different type of movies, but. Just the interaction adds a whole different element to it. Yeah, and and like I think if you asked the average person, they would just assume all games are just like shooter games that are violent. And because the only time that they hear about games is when they're being blamed for some right. violent act or something, so they assume that that's what most games are. Uh, did you always find yourself teaching, or is this a a new thing? Um, you know, I uh, I kind of did because I was always a kid in class. I usually wasn't like the one that got like the absolute best grades. I mean, I was always good in the class, but like <laughs> I was never like the top, top person, but I was always the person that the top person would ask to explain something. <laughs> so I noticed that like there were a lot of people that knew how to like do problems and get to answers, but not a lot of people that had conceptual understandings of the stuff, you know? So, so like I was kind of always like the explainer of stuff, <laughs> you know? So because of that, in like a college, I started doing some like volunteer tutoring that ended up being like like a kind of like a uh, side business. And then that became a full-time business as of five years ago. So like I've been a full-time tutor. I kind of left my uh, corporate engineering jobs that I had over the years. So I've, I've been doing it full-time for, for, for five years and it feels great to like work for myself and to know that, you know, I feel like I'm really doing what I was meant to do which was not the same with the engineering stuff because like well, while I was good at it and it paid well, I wasn't like passionate about it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, that's like a huge, you know, as, as I get older, I mean, I like just turned like 40 a couple of like months ago. I'm basically like, I only want to do things that bring me joy, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a good lesson for everyone. Also, yeah, that skill of teaching and being the one sought out to explain things is is not a common skill. Yeah. I used to hate it because it didn't necessarily translate into me like getting A pluses and everything. <laughs> but I learned later that it's not really about the A plus because it's about like really understanding it. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So I guess we'll start wrapping it up. If there's things that you want to promote, well, then now's the time to do it because it sounds like you got your business and, and some other stuff going on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my website is sharifjackson.com. That's S-H-A-R-E-E-F jackson.com. That basically has links to all my stuff. And I'm Sharif Jackson on all social networks. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, on like a LinkedIn, all that good stuff. And I'm also a cast member on the Rivals of Waterdeep, which is a weekly Dungeons and Dragons show. Um, which is at twitch.tv slash Rivals of Waterdeep and also Rivals Waterdeep on Twitter. We've been going for about two years and it's a blast. So like, so like I also love the like tabletop non-electronic gaming as well. So cool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, not to backtrack, but <laughs> is D&D a newer thing or is that uh, also something from that's been around? No, um, D&D is pretty new. I started it because somebody... A friend of mine who I respect 
tying it to past, she just said like, hey, like we're looking for a D&D group where th- there, there's a mix of like veteran players and like new players. And I was like, well, I'm a new player. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. So like I, I trust her. So I went along with it because for some reason, D&D was always kind of one of those things where I always grew up doing like quote unquote nerdy stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. But that was one of those things that I felt like was even too much like for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I felt the same way. But man, I really wish that like I did it earlier because I absolutely have fallen in love with it. You know, I've fallen in love with it for sure. What's your takeaway as as a game player and, and a studier of games? There's a whole lot of going on with D&D and I think there's a lot of special things about it. I don't play myself, but like just like working with people that do and, and hearing about it, there's it's like gaming on a on a different level. Not that it's any like better or worse. It's just like so different than other, especially video games. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that my thing with D&D is it basically gives me everything I've wanted from video games. Because I'm the kind of person when, like, I play games, especially a narrative-based game, I'm always like, well, like, why does this person do this? Or, like, why couldn't they do this? Or, like, I wonder if they programmed this in there, you know? So I always wondered about those decisions that the developers did not have time to put in, or they made, you know, a design decision not to put in. D&D is, like, kind of like you're playing a game as you're developing it. Right. You know? So, like, you kind of get this really intimate shared experience that's just between the DM and the players, which is awesome. And like, I kind of love that. Like uh, most of of my favorite games, you like kind of have that like unique experience that like only you had, you know, and like every D&D game is like that, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, yeah, it's uh, really cool. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. And on that note, Sharif Jackson, thank you for so much for joining us on the Personal History of Games. Oh, shit. I forgot to introduce the podcast. I did that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that thing that we're talking about. Uh, this is probably the latest I've introduced it. This is the Personal History of Games where we talk about how games have intersected with our lives. That will count as the outro as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you again, <laughs> Sharif, for joining. Uh, it's been a blast playing combat for a while and getting destroyed, but... Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your stories. No problem. Thank you for having me. You can hear more of the personal history of games on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us out, please leave us a rating and review. For updates, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PHOGpod, or check out our website at personalhog.com. The show is hosted and produced by Eric Canius, executive produced by Robin Lands. Do We Like is brought to you by Beamed Media, a Canadian podcast network.